Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. <clears throat> and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the water from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And eventually, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What if the most significant answers to all of life, the the, the answers to the most significant questions in your life, Who are you? Where do you come from? What's what's the point? What's the meaning of this? What if you could find every single answer that you needed for meaning in life in one page of one book? How wild would that be? Like, don't don't miss the, the ridiculous beauty of what we just read because it's familiar. What what we just read is what's called an origin story. It's the story of the beginning of all things. And it's your story. And you look back at an origin story to figure out what your current life means now. And it's, it's not the only origin story, right? So there's a, a modern origin story that goes something like this. In the beginning, there was nothing, and out of nothing came something. And that something exploded and by random chance landed in the one place in the universe that could support life and formed this rock out of space dust, and out of that rock uh, came life. And then that life, after millions of of years, developed into you. That's also an origin story where you can look to try and understand what your life is and who you are and what the purpose of this whole thing is. And you could have an intellectual discussion about the various merits of those two stories or other stories if you wanted to. And and by the way, I think the Christian perspective would hold up pretty well in an intellectual discussion. But the difficulty with that is that we, we come from such different starting points depending on what you assume to be true about the world. And so that's a little bit hard to have that discussion So let's start where we all have common ground. No matter where we land on what we believe to be true about the world, here's the common ground that we have, is that every single human being that's willing to be honest and every person in this room, you believe that there's purpose and meaning to life. 
right? It's, it's intuitive for all of us to, to assume that, that there's got to be some bigger purpose for all of this, right? You can't, you can't look at this and, and conclude honestly in your heart that there's nothing behind it. Or if you do conclude that intellectually, your emotions and your mind and your intuition betray you. In fact, pretty much all scholars, um, sociologists, psychologists agree, whether they're secular or Christian, that human beings are meaning-making machines, that, that we can't help but try to live for something bigger than ourselves, and that if we don't, we start to, to lose it. We, we, we can't see perspective on the world or what this is for without some larger essential purpose. And so here are your, your two options between those two origin stories is that you came from nothing, you're an accident, and there's no overlying purpose to your life. Or God made everything and therefore this world is dripping with purpose. That meaning hides in, in the most menial stuff of life. That you are not an accident but an eternal wonder. That, that, that creation is, is screaming out to you that God exists and that he's good. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. The idea is that everything that's good in this universe is shouting out to you the existence of a being who is beyond anything that you can imagine but is, but is deeply close to you and wants relationship with you so much so that he would cry out from his world to you saying, believe, I'm here. I want relationship with you. That... that that everything is a part of some grand narrative, a, a bigger story that will all culminate in history and all of history will culminate in him. Those are the two options. Now, given that we all universally assume, if we're honest, that there's gotta be some purpose, some meaning, why do some people, in fact, why do all of us at times lean towards the first explanation and not the second, right? Even if you claim to believe that second explanation about the world, you and I, we all have those moments in our lives where we live like there is no absolute purpose or authority beyond ourselves and we live completely consumed for the things that we want and that we think are good in our lives. So why would we tend to lean towards that first explanation rather than the second? I think the answer is, is because if there really is a God who made everything and owns everything, it would mean that he owns you. And that's really hard for us to come to grips with because there's just honestly some, some scary implications to that or what appear to be scary implications to that. And so that's what I wanna talk about this morning is this God who is the universal authority. And I wanna ask the question is, is, how could we trust a God like that? How could we trust a universal authority like that? But, okay, I got to do a quick side note before we get to that, okay? And, and we've got to talk about what Genesis 1 is and what it isn't. Otherwise, here's what's going to happen. Is you guys are going to go to your connection groups and you're going to end up talking about some really weird stuff like how old the earth is. Or if you can believe in evolution. If we were like an animal at one point and have turned into this and you're going to have this, this weird discussion. And here's what I got to tell you. Is Genesis 1 is not about that. It is, it is not trying to answer the question. Genesis 1 is not primarily concerned with how God made the world, but the purpose of the world. Okay, so I want you to, to imagine this. I want you to imagine I came up to you and I said, man, 
I found this incredible invention on Kickstarter, and it's going to change your life. And so here's the deal. I want it to be a surprise, though. And so I ordered it, and it's coming to your house. Okay, I got your address. I'm sending it to your place. So in a couple weeks, you get this, this box uh, at your house. You take it inside. You open it up, and it's this weird machine. Okay, and it's got these like dials and screens on it. There's these little pieces of metal sticking out from it. So you have no idea what this thing is. So you want that. I said this is going to change your life. You want badly to figure this thing out. So you call me. What questions are you going to ask me? Is the first question out of your mouth going to be, hey, uh, what warehouse did this ship out of? Was it like, did it come from Michigan or did it come from Texas? Like where did, okay, can you tell me how many screws are in this machine and, and was, it, was it a robot that put on the screws or did you like screw this in yourself? Like, no. What are you gonna ask me? What the heck is this thing and what does it mean for my life? What, what is the purpose of the machine? The question you'll be asking is what is the machine for, not the details of how the machine was made. God was the original inventor and he made this. All of this. And all of us look at this and kind of go, what is this? What am I supposed to do with this? What does this all mean? And the question you should be asking is not, hey God, how specifically did you make this? Was it in literal seven days? Or was it, you know, are those kind of figurative, like periods of time and, and evolution? And what is that? No, you're not asking the logistics of how God made it. You're asking, what does this machine do? What is it for? So Genesis 1 and how we interpret Genesis 1, we need to focus on what the meaning of creation is, not the method of creation. So, got that out of the way. All right, no talking about evolution and connection groups. All right, you're fine. Just get past it. <clears throat> so, what is Genesis 1 trying to tell us? Well, first it's trying to tell us primarily who is God. It's trying to answer the question, who is God? And then secondarily, it's trying to answer the question, who are we? And so that's what we'll focus on here. So who is God? First one, God is the ultimate authority. Verse one again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right off the bat, the first words of the Bible are so telling. In the beginning, God. Okay, he, he was just there. Like, he created the beginning. And God does not have an origin story. He's not looking back at something before him to try and figure out who he is. God knows who he is because he's always been there. He's self-existent. God was never created. He was never caused. He just was. And here's the deal. God one day said, I want a creation. And this is crazy. He didn't have to ask anybody for permission. He didn't have to get any permits he just did it. He, he, he just went and made himself a world because he felt like it. And so he just did it. And, and, and notice the way that he creates. If you want to create something amazing and beautiful, what do you have to do? You have to learn how to make it. And you've got to put a lot of time and effort and energy into it. What does God do to make this incredibly intricate universe? He just speaks. He just says it. And then it is. That, that's what, like, God's desires, as they come out of his mouth, turn into reality. There, there's no dissonance between what God wants and what 
is in creation. They're the same. There, there's so much raw power that his simple desire means that it happens. So can I, can I make an observation? You can't accept a God like that into your life. So I want to, I think there's some terminology or some of the ways that we think about salvation or following God that are a little bit unfortunate. There's sort of this idea that what Christianity means is that you make a little bit of space in what you're already doing and then invite God into it as if he would be honored that he got a little piece of your life. You know, like you're inviting God over for dinner as long as he doesn't stay too long and eat too much food, you know, and you're hoping that he's gonna be honored at that invitation. You know, here, here's the implications of Genesis 1 is God does not need you at all. In, in any way, he is not dependent on you for anything. He is not looking to you for anything. And, and actually what's true is he has no reason to care about you. I'm not saying that he doesn't. Hear me on that. I'm saying he would have no reason to care about you. He doesn't owe you anything. And so the wild aspect about who God is and about the idea of Christianity is that even though God needs absolutely nothing from you, owes you nothing, and has no reason to know you, he wants to. That he would invite you into his life on the condition that you would recognize him as Lord. In other words, that you would trust him, which would mean that you would give him your entire life. You would toss him the keys to your life. That would be the only logical conclusion with a God like that. And we have to see that that is a remarkably beautiful opportunity to turn over the control of your life to him is an incredible opportunity that he did not need to offer you, but he chose to out of a desire to have relationship with you. But I think the reason why that's a little bit tough for us is because we're always afraid of unchecked power. And a lot of the times, rightfully so, right? Even, even how our, our government is, is structured is there's a series of checks and balances out of a desire to prevent completely unchecked power. Or, or for some of you, it's more personal. You've had someone who is of an authority position in your life abuse that authority. And you know what it's like to feel helpless and out of control and to have someone working against you and not for you. And so we're afraid of that idea of completely ultimate unchecked power. But what if there was an absolute authority in the universe who was also good, relentlessly, unendingly good? What if there was a being who never slept because he never needed to sleep, who is consistently ordering the universe for your good if you're in Christ. Like as, as, a, as terrifying as the concept of, of unchecked ultimate authority would be, wouldn't the idea of absolute authority who is always good be that much better? Like wouldn't that set you free if you could rest into that ultimate goodness? So God is the ultimate authority, but God is also good. 
Genesis 1, 1. Let's look back at this again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, surprisingly, the beginning of Genesis in the picture of creation is the, the first picture we get is not actually good. So all of these words that it just used, formless, void, darkness, the deep, all of those words are communicating something that is fearful, something that's unknown. It's, it's chaotic. Now, we don't exactly know why that is. There's a, a few different explanations from scholars on why that is. Usually the explanations involve that, that a lot of scholars think this, is, um, this could be where the fall of Satan happened. And so there's some sort of this sort of initial creation and within that, the, the fall of Satan happens or this is poetically sort of communicating that there is evil at work in the world but that God is, is pushing up against that evil. But, but I love the, the follow-up to that, that idea of the chaos. It says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So that word hovering is used elsewhere in the Bible. It's used in Deuteronomy and it refers to an eagle who is sort of hovering over her nest to protect her young. And so it's this idea that God is, is hovering over his creation to, to protect it from the chaos and the wickedness in the world. And here's what creation is, is God imposing his will on this creation to turn it into something that is ordered and good. He takes chaos and he makes it into ordered goodness. Where's the chaos in your life, by the way? Don't you want so badly to be like God in this? Like to look at whatever you're afraid of, whatever's going wrong, whatever's chaotic in your life, and to be able to just snap your fingers and bring it into order? And aren't you busy trying to do that? How's that going? Turns out you're not God. But I want you to see that if God really is who he claims to be, how incredibly good news that is that you are not him. <laughs> that, that maybe the fact that you're out of control of your life would be an incredible thing because it would cause you to go to him, the one who invented the universe, and say, God, will you help me? To come to him in dependence and say, God, I'm afraid. My life feels chaotic. I don't know what to do and to watch him impose his goodness onto your chaos, to, to order your life, to bring you into deeper relationship with him. You see his goodness in his order. But there's more to his goodness in Genesis 1. Even, even the structure of Genesis 1, you, you see his good creation in his good world, but even the structure of how Genesis 1 is written is communicating the generosity and the goodness of God. So there's this, this structure going on where days 1 through 3 correspond with days 4 through 6. And here's what's happening. In days 1 through 3, God is creating domains, and then in days four through six, he's filling those domains, right? So, so in day one, God creates the beginnings of the universe, and he's creating day and night. He's, he's separating creation into these categories. And then in day four, he's filling that darkness and light with the sun and the moon. 
In day two, he's, he's separating the, the heavens from the water and, the, and the, the language is a little bit difficult, but most Hebrew scholars think that by heavens, he actually means sky, that often heavens often meant a very physical thing, so it likely means sky atmosphere. And so he's creating and, and separating the, the sky and the land. And then in day five, he fills the, the sky and the water with birds and fish. And then day three, he, he sort of forms the, the land. And then in day six, he fills that land with human beings, with man. And he says, fill the earth. So, so this is what I'm saying is God creates something and then he stuffs it full with his creative goodness. Do you ever wonder why the universe is so big? Doesn't it seem a little unnecessary? <laughs> like when you start thinking about the scale, like have you ever watched the YouTube videos where it starts with like a country and then it zooms out to the world and then it zooms out to the moon and then it's the galaxy and then and it just gets trippy and, and, and why is it expanding? The universe is expanding. What does that even mean? Why? Why is it so big? Okay, we don't actually know, but, but I think it's, it's because God needed enough sheer space to display his goodness. He wanted to stuff this place full with beauties and wonders that would scream out to you about his existence. The universe is like a cup that's overflowing with God's creative goodness. That's wild. He's good. He's not just the authority, but he's good, and everything he makes is good. But here's what's even more wild is the pinnacle of that created goodness is you. In this room is sitting the most remarkable aspects of God's creation. So God is the ultimate authority and he's good, but who are we? Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Do you have any idea how valuable you are? How valuable people are? The, the, the person sitting next to you, your, your friend or your spouse or the random stranger that you awkwardly talk to in meet and greet, <laughs> they are speckled with the divine. They, they are carrying God's image into the earth, are you able to see the utter and unique value of human beings? So a while back, my, my grandpa moved out of uh, one of his houses that he'd been living in for a long time, and he had all of this stuff in his basement, essentially a storage closet, and he invited just me and I over to go through it and take whatever we want, which if you've ever heard me talk about my love for free stuff, this was like a dream scenario. Uh, it, was, it was just a big deal in my life. So we went through this basement and I had this armful of just random nonsense um, that I was pumped about. And then over in the corner, I saw uh, this old record player. I think they're called phonographs. Like there's no electricity involved. You literally crank it. And it's, it's a standing one, it's like this tall, and you, you crank it, and then it spins, and then you, you put a record on it. And it was covered in dust, there was stuff leaning up against it, there was like these totes stacked up on top of it. I was like, Grandpa, what's that? He's like, I, it's, it's junk, it's a, 
It's an old record player, been in a family for a long time. Like, there's CDs now, and I want to say, Grandpa, there's a lot more than CDs, but uh, <laughs> there's CDs now, so, you know, you, it's junk. You don't need it. And, you know, when I hear the word junk, I'm like, oh, no, that's not junk. So, so I go over there, and I look at this thing, and I kind of wipe the, the dust off. It's actually in incredible shape. And so I went home that night and I started Googling like value of these record plates. I didn't know exactly which one it was. And so I don't know exactly how much it's worth. But what I found out is actually it's worth a lot. Easily hundreds of dollars, maybe into the thousands, right? So I went back and I got that sucker and I, <laughs> and I cleaned it up. And now it's displayed in my house and I'm, and I'm proud of it, right? And, I, and I, I dust it and I make sure nobody gets any liquid within 10 feet of it. And, and, and so, so here's the deal. That thing, that record player was valuable when it was sitting in my grandpa's basement covered in dust and stuff. And it's valuable now displayed in my house. But the difference is, is it needed someone to recognize its value. And when you recognize the value of something, you inevitably treat it differently. You don't treat it like junk, you treat it with respect. Here's who you are as a Christian, is you are a person who recognizes the value in human beings, and you treat them utterly differently than anyone else does. The fact that human beings are made in the image of God means that anger, bitterness, disrespect, disrespectful outrage, all of those things are antithetical to the Christian worldview. When you see a human being, you look forward the tainted nature, you look through the tainted nature of their sin and you see God in them. And you realize that the way that you treat them is the way that you treat God. If you respect them, you're respecting God. If you disrespect them, you disrespect God. And by the way, you're included in that. The, the way that some of you think about yourself and talk about yourself. I just want to ask you, like, who do you think you are to talk to you like that? You, you are an image bearer. God, fear, he made you fearfully and wonderfully made. You, you should see yourself with the dignity and worth and significance and beauty that God sees you. Treat yourself with respect. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not only are we image bearers, but we are also enjoyers. We're enjoyers of God's creation. Okay, so sometimes Christians get this reputation of being like fun-hating killjoys. Let's just call it what it is. It's true. People think that. Sometimes it's deserved. Sometimes it's not. But, but here's the deal. Sometimes we're better at finding problems with the world than enjoying it. But here's the problem. If we are all crabby killjoys... As representatives to the world, the world will think that God is a crabby killjoy. But he's not. God is the most joyful being in the universe. There's literally nothing wrong in his world. Can you imagine that amount of control that he has? He's never had a problem. He's never been confused about anything. He's fine. All that, he's just chilling. He's at peace over the universe. And he's joyful. And, and you see that in the, rep, uh, the repetition over and over again of Genesis, God makes something and then he stands back and he looks over it and he says, what? It is good. And, and Genesis didn't have to be written like that. It could have said at the beginning and all of the following things that God makes are good. But it's, it's like over and over again, it, it gives you this window into God celebrating over his earth. It's like God is, is standing back and he's like, this place is awesome. I love it. Guys, 
God made a platypus. Like, who does that? He, he took like a duck bill and some fins and he put it on like this beaver thing. That's, he for sure, he was having fun when he did that, right? There is no way that God was not laughing when he was making a platypus. Like, you look at creation and there's this, there's this weightiness to it and this epicness to it and there's just this delight, this just joy, this creative energy coming out of everywhere in creation that is wild because God enjoys his life and enjoys his world. And as image bearers of God, as representatives of what he's like to the world, so should we. And one of the best ways that we can be like that, that we can be like God in his joy is by enjoying this good world that he gave us, just like he does. So uh, my niece Fallon, over Christmas, when she was opening up presents, I could tell which one she loved and which one she hated. Uh, and she hated the ones that she said thank you for. Okay, so, so here's what I mean. She would open up this gift, and she either didn't like it or she had already gotten it from somebody else, and she knew it was sort of her duty to say thank you, right? So she would say, thank you, Grandpa Jean, like that, and then she'd sort of move on, right? But when she got something that she loved, she would do what I called the present dance, which I won't demonstrate for you. Uh, there was, but there was hips involved, and she would like hug it, and she would do, I'll, I'll do this part. She would do this like little shoulder shake like this. And, and then she would tear into that thing and just play with it. Just enjoy it. And which one of those do you think that her grandpa was most honored by? Actually, the second one. He loved it. When she would just open that thing up and start playing with it, he took joy in her joy. Because the best way, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't say thank you, okay? It's not that. But like the, the best way to say thank you for something that's amazing, for a gift that's amazing, is to enjoy it with everything that you have. So this is what I'm saying. It is part of your responsibility as a Christian made in the image of God to go out and enjoy God's good world. And I'm not saying you're going to be happy all the time, that everything's going to go perfect in your life. I'm saying cultivate the spiritual discipline of celebration. Because in Christ, everything is fine. No matter how bad it's going, you still have him. And so go enjoy him in his world. There's no spiritual sort of sacred divide. There's not Christian stuff over here and the normal stuff over here. It's all God's. He said all of it was good. Food. He, he could have given you like an IV bag that just put food into your body so that you had energy, but he made food taste amazing. So enjoy it. Worship God through the celebration of his good world. So we're image bearers, we're enjoyers, and lastly, we're resters. Now we're into Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, the final day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he had rested, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So it's this beautiful picture of God stepping back from this incredible work of creating this, this new creation, and him just kind of dusting his hands off and sitting back and enjoying it. He rested. 
Now question, did God rest because he was tired? It's like, whew, that creation really took it out of me. No, he's God. So why did he rest? Because he wanted to step back and enjoy the goodness of what he had just made. And in that, we get a glimpse of what salvation is like. The seventh day is a picture of the greater Sabbath rest that God is inviting us into. That here's what salvation is, is it's standing with God, looking over his good world and seeing everything made right in him and saying along with him, it is good. And enjoying the fact that everything has been made right. And, and I think that that seventh day wasn't just a day that was supposed to be completed and then you move on to the next day. That seventh day was supposed to be what we were to continue in for the rest of eternity. But we lost our seventh day when we sinned. We lost our rest in God and our ability to enjoy his world with him and to rest in him when we sinned. And ever since, we have been desperately scratching and clawing and working to try to get back to the presence of God and try to get back to that rest in him. But yet nothing ever seems to actually be able to get us back to that point where we can truly say, yes, everything's good, let's celebrate. Because there's still something wrong in this world and there's still something wrong in us. So Jess and I, were um, kind of doing our Sabbath. We're trying to do like a weekly Sabbath essentially to just enjoy the day, to rest, and to worship God. And so we were doing that yesterday. And we have uh, <clears throat> a couple Sabbath songs that we listen to that like start out the day and we light a candle. And you might think, okay, that's weird and that's fine. We like it. It just kind of sets apart the day. But then at the end of our day, we do the same thing. We listen to that song and then we blow out the candle. And the emotions that we feel to begin the Sabbath day and end the Sabbath day are very different. <laughs> Going into it, there's just excitement. It's like, man, I'm gonna put my phone away. I'm gonna enjoy my life and be with Jesus. But then when it was over yesterday and I'm listening to that song, I just got sad <laughs> because it's like, I'm going back to the grind <laughs> And I've got a bunch to do, and, and I, I just, I want this to keep going. But here's what Jesus came to offer us, is a perpetual Sabbath rest. He came to complete all of the works that we had to do to get back into relationship with God, so that all there was left to do was to rest into him and enjoy him. And when he hung on the cross for our sins, for our lack of ability to work to get back in a relationship with God, what did he say? It is finished. And Hebrews 4 talks about this, that our work is finished in Christ, that there's nothing left that we have to do to earn our way back in, to achieve our salvation. There's nothing that we can do, that our work is finished in him. And that because of his work, we can lean into this eternal Sabbath rest and we don't have full access to it. But right now in Christ, we can take a breath and trust that we are okay in him, that we don't have to earn our relationship back with God, but that he's invited us back into himself. But here's the wild thing is I think 
that at the end of all things, God will reestablish this seventh day. And I think we as believers will watch him recreate his good world. I, I think that we will watch him hang a new heavenly moon in the sky. And he will get to that final day and along with him, we will declare it is good. And guess what? The Sabbath song will never play. The candle will never have to be blown out because that eternal rest that Jesus invites us into will continue on forever. And for the rest of eternity, we will celebrate God through his new creation with him and we will finally rest. Let me pray. Kind of look forward to that day of watching you recreate this earth and bring it back into what it was meant to be from the beginning. And I can't wait to just be with you. A lot of the Psalms talk about seeing your face and, and, and the amazing privilege of getting to, to look at you face to face. God, we can't wait to see your face and to watch you recreate this world and to make it good again. And we can't wait to be good in your presence. And Jesus, thanks for doing all of the work for us so that there's nothing left for us to do, that we can lean into you, trust you, rest in your works, not our own. And we look forward to the day that we get to explore new creation with you. We trust you. We rest in you. We love you. Amen.